Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right. <laughs> My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Scotty and Jennifer Henry. We're at Season Cellars in Roseburg. It's June 24th, 2022. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, first question for either of you is why wine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why not? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, well, it's, uh, it's a... Um, it's in our blood. Yeah, it's, it's something that I think we're not the only ones. It's a, a, a subject and a lifelong, you know, what ends up being a lifelong adventure, uh, learning, experiencing thing. And I think the once a lot of people get a little taste of it, a lot are drawn into the wine industry, whether they're retail or restaurant or sommelier or actually involved with wine production or wine sales through wholesale and you know whatever I running across so many people over the years out there that have where they were doing something else or they they somehow they got interested in 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 wine being maybe just even a waiter or a waitress for a restaurant and it just piqued their interest and as they got into it farther it just became it's like well I want to be in the wine industry so our my background, I guess, is a little bit different. I, I more or less grew up in the wine industry or around it since I was actually a little kid. Um, my uh, my father, that founded Henry Estate Winery in 1978, was an engineer down in Sacramento in the uh, 60s. He was an aerospace engineer in Sacramento for Aerojet General, um, uh, working on some of the uh, early um, you know, NASA uh, projects, Apollo, various different things. I don't want to get into that too much, but uh, while he was there at Aerojet, he became friends, very close friends, and teamed up with a couple of other engineers down there, uh, Norm Deleuze and Gino Zapponi. And they went on in the late 60s to form ZD Winery, which is probably, is, if not, that should be fairly well known to most wine winophiles on the that are familiar with Pacific, at least California and uh, Pacific Coast wine production. So, um, Gino Zapponi and my dad were actually best friends, and, and you know, men, many fly fishing trips um, on the American River up uh, east of uh, Sacramento, and they uh, took me on some. I remember as a kid, you know, on their fishing trips, you know, eating pan-fried rainbow trout for breakfast, lunch, and dinner while we were camping up there. It's where I learned to first really love fish and how to bone out a cornmeal cast iron fried, you know, fish. But anyway, uh, so dad became, that's where he became like kind of fascinated. I was much too young, obviously. I was like about six or 
seven or so there in the late 60s. And um, ZD used to be in Sonoma at that time. It wasn't in Napa or anything. It's on the Silverado Trail now. So uh, they took he took me with with them a couple of times or more than once to the original ZD winery there. And I remember the big press like it was like a big giant like an apple press or something with this it was I, I i'm reaching way back because this was you know over 50 years ago you know that i'm i'm trying to pull this up but um so i remember them being around and working on wines and stuff from a very young age i'm actually guilty of breaking my first hydrometer at the age of six I, they were doing their thing and I was over fussing around by the little table where they had some of their lab equipment and I distinctly remember either dad or Gino telling me not to put that thing down and don't mess with it and within a few minutes later I picked it up and and dropped and broke broke their hydrometer I remember you know getting scolded and so that's my one of my very earliest recollections of the wine industry so and then uh, uh, my we moved from Sacramento in 1972, and that's when my father Scott planted uh, the first of the Henry Estate Vineyard. In April of 72, uh, I was part of the planting crew just helping water. I was nine years old at the time, so I was, you know, on the farm. Even the younger ones, you know, are helping out and, you know, doing what they can. So uh, I was remember the first planting of the vineyard in 72, and then Henry Estate formed in 78. I was like a freshman in high school, freshman, sophomore, or something like that. So still not drinking age or whatever, but I helped wash barrels. I have, you know, I did whatever during harvest time crush and stuff like that to kind of help at the time. So my bug, you know, my catching that wine bug started at a very, you know, young age. I'd been around it for a long, I'd seen different, I'd been around a lot of wineries by the time I was, even turning 21 or whatever. So not, I'm not, I don't approach it from having been an adult and drank wines and oh, I love this, I wanna get in the industry. I grew up from an age where like, I love the grape juice that they were making before they were fermented in wine. I couldn't understand this fascination with the wine itself. You know, they were oohing and on over the Henry Estate 78 Pinot and how wonderful it was. And, and I mean, I was, as in high school, they'd like, you know, I'd have as much as they, they have no problem with, you know, great raised on a farm or a ranch. There's another trying to get me drunk. It's like, hey, check this out, pay attention. And I was like, <laughs> just, you know, I couldn't understand what the whole, you know, big hubaloo was all about or whatever until I was a little bit older. And, you know, probably my sophomore year or whatever at Oregon State, you know, and I'd, I'd go back up to school with a case of the red table wine and I wasn't much of a cook but I could make spaghetti and you know and long about 19 or 20 and it's like oh this red wine and the spaghetti go pretty good together you know and and, it, and then it was more of a uh, exponential you know type curve into the wine, you know. Then at that point, not only had I been around wineries since I was really little and seen the process of commercial wine production from the beginning, but I actually like, oh, I like this, this is really good, you know. Uh, I'd, li I'd like what it was that we was coming out the other end, you know, and so that kind of definitely, that'll set the hook in your cheek and, and reel the fish in the boat for sure. When, so that's kind of like, why wine for me? 
Do you want to say a little bit about why wine for you? Sure. Um, well, um, I uh, kind of grew up with it somewhat too. Um, my parents um, uh, were farmers in Kansas and then in 77 um, they moved us out to Oregon and um, uh, so uh, we moved to uh, the Philomath area and um, <clears throat> my father ended up uh, buying some backhoe and cat equipment and did uh, house digouts and septic systems and I helped him with that for a while but Deep in his heart, he was always a farmer. And so he, they purchased some property out by Kings Valley area and um, uh, split it up into some lots and sold a lot to Glenn Longshore with Serendipity. And he proceeded to plant vineyard and start a winery up there and my parents kind of we were doing Christmas trees at the time on that property and um, so uh, we got you know, became friends with Glenn and Cheryl and we'd go up and help them with crush and stuff like that and and so that's kind of where I got hooked uh, I was still young. I wasn't really into drinking much, but it was accepted, you know, that I could try it by my parents. And um, then in 83, uh, we planted our first uh, 20 acres of vineyard, uh, early winery, Dunforest Vineyard is what we called it. Um, but, uh, um, named the winery, Early Winery, because it's out there by the old town site of Early. And uh, so <clears throat> uh, that was when I was uh, like a senior in high school. And um, then I went off to college, went to Oregon State, uh, started out with, in engineering, knew that wasn't what I wanted to do, and uh, then Fine, then got diverted and moved to California for a little bit and, and uh, came back in uh, 89 and uh, started helping my parents. They, were, they had started the winery in 86. And so, and I'd come back in, you know, at times and helped them with that. Um, uh, and then from uh, 89, uh, until uh, they sold it in 97 um, to Mary Olson. Um, uh, I uh, was a major hand in the vineyard. I did marketing. You did everything. I did, I did everything. I, you know, it was just my parents and I that made all the wine. We did it all and we were up to 10,000 cases by the time we sold it in 97. And uh, so anyway, um, I had met Scott in 94, in the meantime, uh, doing festivals and stuff, and uh, uh, who I really uh, fell in love with was. What? Was it was before yeah. 94. Yeah. It was like. 
Yeah, 94 I moved back here. So from 89 to 94, till I moved down here. And we met in yeah. 91. And right, right. In, started dating in 92. Right, keep me correct on this. <laughs> all right, all right, okay. Anyway, basically it was his grandpa, Cal, that I fell in love with initially. So I'd go at, visit him at, at festivals. The, at the table at the Henry Estate booth at the wine festivals. At the when wine I got festivals. a break. And so anyway, then we kind of hit it off in 91, and we've been together since. But uh, anyway. Since uh, yeah. early 92. Right, spring of right, 92. yeah. So and, anyway. Got married on in uh, June of 95. Right. Yeah. So anyway, um, then my parents sold in 97, and um, uh, I went out and did some work at the Henry Estates Winery then, too, and helped out there until uh, basically we started Season Cellars in 2012. 2012. So We're 10 years old. Yeah. So... Perfect timing. Yeah. Uh, celebrating yeah. our 10th anniversary this year yeah. as our own winery. So, awesome. Yeah. So kind of deep roots in the wine industry. Um, it's a lifestyle. Um, I think we enjoy life. We like good things. Uh, we have a rich life. We're not getting rich by any, any means, means, but... <laughs> And I think a rich life makes up for it because it's all about good flavors and we've made so many friends, friends in the industry yeah. that uh, it's, it's um, I don't think, I, I know I don't really want to do anything else in my life, you know, than be in the industry. So anyway, and we like to drink good wine, so. We couldn't afford our habit. <laughs> that was one of the motivating reasons for being and, and justifying or rationalizing yeah. our insane like desire to start our own winery was I looked at her and said, I've got such a high level of expectation of wine that if I wasn't making it myself to my standards, I was going to have to have a really high paying job to afford the quality of wine and the amount of it that I that I consume. I mean, I'd, I'd have to be making, you know, a really shiny figure just to budget for my wine, my wine habit. So we thought, well, maybe we can, you know, make the wine that we want so it'll save me having to spend $50,000 a year on wine or whatever, or tens of thousands anyway, or whatever, on just wine alone. And then, uh, yeah, produce it ourselves, and then eh, we'll sell some along the way and make a business out of it, hopefully. So, but yeah, we both come from uh, way back, yeah. You took a detour, I took a detour for a while, actually in a previous career before I came to work full-time at Henry Estate, because I, I went to Oregon, State in the early mid 80s, graduated in 86. Um, I was a, a flight instructor and we did charter pilot work. Uh, FBO, I flew for. We had contracts with the Forest Service and the Fish and Game. We had some government contracts that we would that use the aircraft in a, a commercial, you know, uh, operations and stuff like that, and uh, did that um, through 1987, and then. Uh, that's when I went to work full time at Henry Estate in '87, and and uh, ended up kind of switching careers. Or I missed the 
I miss not being a, you know, my attempt was to be a airline pilot, you know, and fly jets is what all pilots want to do is fly jets, you know, so, but I took that detour in 80, 87, September of 87, and then I think by 88, I, I, Joined that I became a board member for the State Oregon Wine Growers Association, State OWA, representing the Umpqua Valley as a employee of Henry Estate, and so then I was on a four-year stint on the board, and then after that I served two terms on the Oregon Wine Advisory Board, and, and by that time it just it, it drew me in. I was doing sales for the winery, I was getting more and more of my hands deeper into the winemaking for Henry Estate, and then was representing the industry and the winery at various state level you know, boards and advisory committees, and that tend that tended to kind of that tended to cement me more in the wine industry because it's like if I wanted to like do an about face and go pursue my aviation career, then I would have had to you know leave the boards early before my appointed you know time or which is possible or whatever. But it became a harder and harder thing to look away from the you know the wine industry and and my whatever my role was going to be you know in that industry you know as an industry as a whole and here in the Umpqua Valley and for you know my dad's comp my dad's winery that I was working for at the time and whatever so by yeah by the early 90s when we met in 91 and started dating in 92 I was fairly you know it was pretty written in stone the direction kind of I was taking you know and 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 moving toward and so did a lot of sales for the winery when I was still single and then we got married Calvin was born in 96 and so that traveling to the east coast for a couple of weeks and doing sales out there which used to be you know very exciting and kind of fun for a single guy you know when you had a family that you know, that wasn't working so well anymore. I was homesick the day after I left. I was homesick to be back with them. And it just, it's not, it's all about fun. It's work and we're trying to accomplish something, but you want to have fun along the way. And that's, I think, a lot of what the wine industry is about is that we're doing something that we enjoy so much that it's like when we're working, it's like we're, it's, we're not working really. We're, we're playing, you know. And that's the way it was in the aviation industry too. They paid me, all I wanted to do was fly. And when you're a commercial pilot, they pay you to fly other people's airplanes, right? And I got paid to play. I mean, I got paid to, it's, it's like being a professional, you know, athlete or something. You get paid to play this game or this thing that it was so entertaining for you anyway, it didn't feel like it was working. It's like, hey, if I can get paid doing this, like, wow, you know, if I can make a living at all doing this, like working but not working, you know what I mean? Then that's, I think, the best thing you can do or one of the best things you can do for the, one of the words I want to say, just your general well-being of your life, you know, or whatever. I, you know, I know a lot of people are probably caught up in, they're making good money, but they're doing a job that they don't really, let, you know, there's, there's a grind and a gruel to, you know, having to do that. That's, that all goes away when you're doing something that you enjoy anyway. So, um, uh, so yeah, by the early 90s, I was fairly entrenched in the whole thing. And then wanting to stay home or closer to home instead of doing sales, then I thought I'd probably 
I'd be better served because I was starting to be more and more involved with the actual direction that the winemaking was going to hit. I wasn't winemaker. My dad still was, I guess, kind of we were between. But, you know, I saw I, uh, this was more the direction that I needed to, I thought, go because I have a degree in atmospheric science from Oregon State. So, you know, all the physics and chemistry and thermodynamics and you know I've had 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 all that I didn't study fermentation science but I was around you know like I said winery since I was a little kid and my family's winery so it became kind of a natural thing for me to want to <coughs> move off the road for Henry State and into the cellar and uh, apply my science degree into the winemaking end of things. So I took over winemaking there, probably full, all the reins of the whole operation, probably 1995. Halfway by 94, by 95, I was commanding all winemaking at the winery there. And we had a few employees, but he didn't have any other winemaker type. So it wasn't anybody that had that background that could do that. And I had the science degree anyway. Like I said, it wasn't a fermentation science degree, but it was still hard. It was a hard science degree, you know. And so I just see that winemaking is just kind of an adapt adaptation of that or mm -hmm. something. I didn't have, all through my atmospheric science coursework, I, you know, the, my really the only thing I was lacking was any microbiology. I, the only micro I had was the stuff that you got in the regular biology classes, we touch on microbiology, you know, but um, I didn't. Jennifer actually for a while was an RN, she went to school and at the time she was studying at Umqua Community to get her RN degree and she was going through the micro classes. I was, you know, had been winemaker there for a long time so I was just fascinated in talking with her and learning just on the side, you know, more and more micro. And I attended some short courses at Oregon State back in the 90s, I think 97, 98. Uh, you know, we did day long courses on uh, basic wine microbiology you know, where various different speakers, you know, have a, there's a, it's a symposium and there are little mini seminars every hour on various different subjects. And then we'd regroup the next day and do a whole day long seminar on managing yeast fermentations, which was, you know, applying some of the wine microbiology. And so I, you know, I, I, I went and picked up some, some of the little pieces that I was missing a little bit to have a better grasp on, you know, on, on winemaking. Um, and it's evolved a lot throughout the years on, on our techniques, you know, back in when our families first started making wine, there wasn't much competition out there. And you can't just have mediocre wine now and make it as winery. So it's, uh, and the Oregon wine industry, I mean, just the college and everything, all the research and the education that, you know, to make the whole industry here in Oregon better so that it's good for all of us, you know. So it's a win-win, just all the education opportunities out Well, it's out been there. amazing, I mean, just in my, 30 years of kind of paying attention to the winemaking, you know. Um, I mean, back in the early mid 90s, I mean, nobody heard of Britannomyces or we didn't talk about nitrogen or yeast available nitrogen in the grape must that are necessary for prospering healthy ferments. And I mean, DAP was available, but I mean, the Scott Labs, I'm sure, was around, but the volume of 
microbiological tools and aids that you have, like, you know, yeast nutrient and all of this stuff. I wasn't any of that stuff. I mean, it was, <clears throat> you know, and so yeah, was, I've, I've always been actually fascinated with this industry and the level of, of approach and the detail to technical science. I'm sure, you know, when the cherry growers get together or the hazelnut growers get together, they've got, obviously it's a crop science and there's things involved or whatever, but like if you've ever been around uh, the ASCV, the American Society of Enology and Viticulture, you go to, like it's been years, but they hold the big um, seminar uh, symposium down in Sacramento or whatever and you know there's the trade show with all the equipment and all the all the stuff but you know even the Oregon wine seminar symposium or whatever and then there's but when the ASCV unloads it's like you know there's like they're doing you know graduate work on this stuff they're getting the PhDs and these guys are you know and you're looking at like you know anthocyanin content on Australian Cabernet Sauvignon, you know, vineyards that were leaf plucked on the afternoon side, but not on the morning. And then they're doing these trials and we're doing sensory. And I've just never, I, I don't think there's any other agricultural industry that is so like bent on like getting, achieving the perfect, you know, and just the, all the variables involved when you go from like grape grape Growing. maturity and grape composition to wine quality, you know, I mean, and it's a vast universe just be between those two. And I, I'm just totally amazed at like the scientific approach to to how this happens. So, you know, like the cherry, you know, the cherries, they harvest them to eat. They maybe make some cherry pie. I, you know, I, when the apple growers have a heavy crop that year, they're just going, hey, we're making more or whatever. And you know, we got an industry here where, depending on the site situation or whatever, the grower would actually grow, would go out in the, in the field and drop a third of the crop on the ground at a strategic time so that the rest of the crop gets perfectly ripe. You think, does strawberry growers do this? I mean, do the, do the, does the alfalfa growers do this? I mean, nobody does this. This is, this is like, it's crazy to think about like the apple, you know, they're just getting more apples, you know, but they're just eating them and making apple juice. And now they're making cider. So, and I've actually got a, I'm being more piqued in, with interest on, on um, this whole cider thing. I've come across some that I really like a lot. And I'm just, my wheels are turning, you know, and there's different varietals of apples that do different things. And, you know, just watching a video of the cider master at uh, Two Towns and the cider press they had, and they were pressing this kind of apple, and he's down at the bottom when the juice is coming off, you know, tasting it and talking about qualities. And it made me think about, like, how that relates to us when, when the grapes come in. Because there's grape, and then there's grape, and then there's grape, you know, and, and most people People, most average people would, when they came, they wouldn't know if I had some mediocre Viognier or Miller Turgau from one grower in one bin and I had, they probably wouldn't know much of a difference, but, you know, as soon as, you know, right, I mean, straight away, just by looking at the fruit or, you know, we're out in the vineyards that we buy from before the grapes, you know, right at, 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 at harvest time and they're coming in, you know, um, we're assessing quality, obviously, you know, and then when we start to 
press off and produce the juice. Sam took up talking about white wine because we just we get the juice and we fairly quickly, you know, once I do a little bit of sensory and I run a few numbers in the lab and stuff, we got a pretty good idea. Like, yeah, we got this is this is going to be really good. So, and depending on how grape is grown, you know, there it's it's like that. Whatever. There's coffee and then there's coffee and then there's coffee. Some people call Folgers coffee, and you know, I just I don't get it. But you know, it doesn't work for me. But you know, and we have to decide at what level is a okay for us so that you know there's no need to spend the dollar for something really that you're not going to be able to appreciate the level of it or right. whatever but the that grape composition that entire starting process of the you know the quality of the fruit and then from that point you know if if we do our job and don't get in the way too much and don't don't screw it up because you know you can take awesome grapes and make really crappy wine out of it, you know, but I've Jennifer's heard this a million times and I'll tell customers I can't take Chuck and make ribeye dinners out of it. I just I you can't do it. It's not there. You can put lipstick on a pig and, you know, kind of call it whatever you want, you know, but the real deal is when you get your nose into the glass and then you get start to, you know, try it and you see what it is that you're looking with. So um yeah, I've just been fascinated with this push over the, I'm kind of just expanding on you talking about that we know so much more. We just keep learning more and more and more about, you know, the entire, we've, as an industry, we've, we've come so far and I think any um, honest or uh, humble winemaker would, know, would admit that even with like maybe 30 years of winemaking behind them, I not, don't know everything and they're still, much to learn, you know, about this, you know, as we go along. And the way we do it is by making wine. So, you know, I have a laboratory over there where I run chemical tests, but the real lab is back here is in the cellar because every time we run a ferment, I mean, I've done thousands of them literally, no two have ever come out the same way twice. It never happens exactly the same way twice. So it's a very seat of the pants kind of thing. And, mm -hmm. and yeah, I think this just this, this understanding more and more of it, it's been uh, been a lot of fun to, and like I said, I'm just totally fascinated with people who get their PhDs doing a whole graduate thesis project on some wine, you know, really technical, whatever, I could blah, 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 go on. It's, it's, you know, and you go to these symposiums and you see these presentations of it and it's just, you know, and, and some of it, like, because we went that one year, 92, to the Cool Climate Symposium in Mainz, France. So it was a big, more, it was like ASCV, like on steroids, you know, because they came from all over the world for, and it was designed for cool climate, viticulture, and enology. So Californians were like, you guys can come, but you're, it's not what we're talking about. We're talking cool climate, you know, because that's what Oregon's always been battling for all these decades from, you know, the very time back when, the story I heard about David Lett and actually Rich Summer here at Hillcrest when they went to Davis down there and they were flat told in the 60s that grapes, wine grapes could not be grown in Oregon. I mean, it was it was part of what they learned at, you, at, at, at Davis down there. And like, well, obviously that wasn't correct. I mean, we've, we know that to be absolutely false and stuff. So there at ASEV, they'd be, you know, all kinds of presentations of different, you know, various technical aspects on, on cool climate, you know, with a specific emphasis on cool climate uh, grape growing and, and, you know, and enology and winemaking and stuff. And so that's pretty, pretty fun to be able to kind of learn, you know, learn as much as you can. But you're always like, 
okay, this is great. I'm reading this paper, this 14 page, you know, paper on some technical thing of winemaking. And what you've got to do as the practical winemaker is figure out like, okay, well, what parts of this can help me make better wine tomorrow? You know, because a lot of it's like, you know, that's the difference between, you know, theoretical and a lot of what the university work would be doing. And then, you know, and it's not just particular to winemaking grape growing. It's like this in so many different areas, right? The real practicality or the practical approach, you know, out in the commercial world is often very different. It's usually quite a bit different than, you know, what happens at the university, you know, in a pure, you know, academic world where, you know, of course they have resources for equipment and all kinds of crap that like, you know, we're not gonna, you know, I don't have a MSGC on board to, you know, do this, you know, microanalysis and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So, mm -hmm. so we're always trying to learn, figure out what's practical, what, can, what, how, what, what am I learning now that can help me, you know, make better wine tomorrow or whatever. And and again, I've always been yeah. and new issues with it. keep coming up, like the smoke taint, yep. water yep. issues down. You know, um, some of our growers. Uh, we get grapes down in the road, so, you know, just water, lack of water, because they need to irrigate some of those vines, you know, so anyway. We're constantly learning, and then Mother Nature delves us different, every year's different, so I think that's what keeps us hooked, you know. Absolutely. Uh Sky, tell me about, you mentioned you, 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 your intention wasn't necessarily to go back and work for the family business, but you, you found yourself back there pretty quickly and, and never and, and were kind of hooked quickly. So tell me about uh, working for the family business, going back and working for your dad, and, and so the, the progression through of your role and your work at Henry Estate. Um, well, you know, like what I mentioned, I, you know, it, the vineyards planned in 72, the winery was Founded in '78, and first production happened there, and, I, and then I, and I was at Oregon State from off and on. I took a year off, and it took me. I switched major, so it ended up taking me a sec, another year to finish my degree. So I was up in Corvallis most of you know '80 through, and up graduated in '86. I took '81, '82 off, and then was full time back at OSU from '82 through '86. Um, and like you know, I. Would you know as a college student? So, like on break, Christmas break and spring break, you you know, well, Some, the first year you're in the dorm, and I guess you know you had a house up there, but there were places off campus you were renting with some. Basically, you know, school was shut down for a break or even over the summer, and you know. I didn't have a stable home or you end up going home because like, you know, they're closed out of school and they're like everybody go home, you know, for a week, spring break, or <laughs> two weeks for Christmas break, you know. So, so I'd be home and, you know, and, and actually during like harvest time in October, September and October, I remember going home on just on weekends to kind of help out, you know, with hard grape harvest be there. I just, you know, be the one picking the buckets. We had square boxes and dumping them in the bins in the truck. And, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have a lead role of any kind. I was just, you know, helping out. So, you know, I did that a lot through, you know, the early part of the 80s. And so I remember some, 
you know, some of those earlier vintage, 82, 83, 84. This is interesting this spring that we've had and all this rain. I've been warning people, I think it was the summer 82 uh, down here in Umpqua and Roseburg. We didn't have more than a five day stretch without rain all through the summer. It did this all July, August. I mean, it's like, oh, summer's here. We'd have about four or five days and it would have come in and we'd have a cold front come through and it would literally rain, you know, in July and August. It just, and, and I think 80, Three was a pretty wet year, and then I remember in 84, I don't remember what the summer was like, but I remember we picked every day in the rain. 84 was a disastrous vintage for the Willamette Valley, I know. Um, nobody can get any, just unripe, unripe, you know, rot, you know, lots of bunch rot, mildew all over the place, it was, it was bad news. So I, you know, I remember some of those, you know, earlier vintages, and, uh, um, uh, and those, uh, those, you know, being there and kind of learning and helping out and, um, um, you know, helping in that limited capacity, you know. Um, and then as I mentioned in 87, uh, I took a detour from my flying career I still wonder. I, every time a plane flies over, I haven't been current. I've been current in about like at least 12 years. I want to go get my third-class medical and go see the local flight instructor and take a hop and be able to go up in the Skyhawk and just go buzz around again. Because I got like I had like 2,200 hours of logged flight time. The bulk of that was instruction given as a flight instructor. I, I do miss it a lot, but um, things. There was a change in '87 and. There was an opportunity out there at Henry Estate for more steady pay. That was the problem being a flight instructor back in the like the mid '80s, and you got paid when you flew, but when you didn't fly, they didn't pay you. You know, it was only so there would be days I'd hang out in the airport for eight or ten hours, and I'd get two hours of pay, I'd make like maybe 30 bucks or something, you know, and I, the whole day's work, you know, out there. And I'd help out with other things around the FBO just because you were there and you need something to do. But it, it, unless I'd moved on to like the commuter airline industry and then, on, which was my goal to do. And to do that, I would have had to move really to Phoenix or Dallas or some fair weather flying, you know, states where they fly year round and continue instruction to move on kind of up that ladder, up that aviation ladder. So opportunity came, steady pay, you know, and work. My parents didn't do really the festivals, you know, we, Henry State did festivals, but they were busy, you know, dad was busy for sure. And so, you know, like my grandparents would be the ones that would do the wine festivals a lot, you know, just helping out. And they were getting a little older, so, and then cousin Jerry, yeah. remember Jerry, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and who lived up in the Portland area and so, like whenever there were festivals or whatever or other activities where we were poor in Portland, you know, then that, and those were kind of fun. So like, you know, me and my grandparents and my cousin Jerry would be the festival crew, you know, at the Newport or Astoria Festival or whatever back then. And again, that kind of connects back to where, how she found me, because she'd come over and flirt with my granddad. <laughs> and, uh, and then I'd be out around or whatever, and I'd come back, and you know, here's this cute thing, you know, like holding court over there with my granddad and everything, and and then, and 
with, with grandma, you know, like, you know, I don't think she, <laughs> like, but that's yeah, when. Grandma yeah, was sweet too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. my grandma Ella was just yeah. a sweetheart. Yeah. So, um, so that kind of drew me more into the permanent, uh, or more hardcore kind of, you know, attention to the winery and its various different aspects and stuff. I helped out some in the vineyard back before I took over winemaking. Um, there were times they were behind in pruning and he'd come in and go, get out of the cellar and we need two more, three more, we need the two of you that are in the winery all the time out here in the vineyard to get pruned and wrapped up for, you know, well, mud you break. Were doing and a lot of marketing for him too. I was you doing a lot of marketing and sales, but I remember, yeah. I remember 91 him yanking me out into the vineyard making me prune. So, I, Jennifer Haver or whatever, she's more the grape gal. She's got more patience than I do, and I'm kind of high strung from my mother's side, I think. And so, <laughs> I just like, you know, and I know some people that are in the wine industry will just laugh at me, but I just, to take all day to prune a hundred vines, two rows of 50, if you're lucky, moving fast, I just couldn't stand still long enough to be, I, I don't, it's just things in motion that, I don't know, being a pilot and just whatever, or the dynamics in the winery where we're doing different things versus standing here. And I understand fully, full well, the importance of that vines being taken care of, pruning correctly, you know, canopy management, you know, nutrition, the whole deal. I mean, all everything downstream from that, the winemaking and all the wine enjoyment, all starts with with that point there. So it's like being the center on a football. He's the first guy to touch the football. Nothing else happens without that center getting the getting that ball to the quarterback. You know, if if that doesn't happen correctly, there's nothing else. Everything else is going to fail, almost guaranteed. Um, and so I understood the importance of that for sure. But I didn't really have the. It was very taxing on me to have the patience to sit out there, you know, driving the tractor more. Okay, here we go. We got a sprayer. We're doing this, and we're hedging. You know, put Scotty in the tractor and go have him run rows in the grape. That was a little bit more because I drove. We had a farm down there too, so I drove the other tractors while we, you know, I disc I disc fields and you know pulled hay rakes and 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 you know balers and stuff. I learned how to drive a stick shift. Uh, my learning drive a stick shift was in like 1972 when we first moved up. So I was like nine, I, don't, I turned 10 that August or something like that. And we had a one of those older, it was a Ford, a gray Ford, like a 19 horse gasoline powered tractor. It wasn't powerful. It didn't really, I think they come with small loaders. This one didn't have a loader on it and it didn't really have I remember, I don't remember much even of a PTO. It must have had a PTO on the back, but we draw the water tank with it. And it had just a little throttle, do, 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 do thing like that. And it was reverse up. It was a three speed or a four speed, four speed, I guess, for second, third. And we had a reverse or it was reverse. But, you know, I would, they'd send me out to water the grapes. And so, you know, we, we you know, I, that was my first uh, experience in learning how to drive a, manual transmission was this little 19 horse Ford kind of gray tractor and um, uh, um, you know um, so I, I'm trying to figure out where I'm going with all this but um, you know by 80 you know seven then I stepped into a, definitely a more permanent kind of 
role there at the winery and then like I said got on the state OWA board and the Oregon Wine Advisory Board and that kind of locked things in a little bit and then took over winemaking in about 95 and then directed and guided the winemaking at Henry Estate from 95 to 2012 uh, when we when I left and we formed Season Sellers. It just became not a really good fit for me anymore working for the family, just a lot of dynamics involved and, and um, had an opportunity to kind of go a different direction and Jennifer was ready to help me with all that. And so yeah, I cut my teeth just making lots of Pinot Noir there and uh, my winemaking styles changed dramatically over the years. Um, I don't make wine now the way I did five years ago. I don't make wine, didn't make wine five years ago the way I did 10 years ago. I didn't make wine 10 years ago the way I did 15 years ago. What are the biggest but changes? By my, you know, by 2000 when I'd been winemaker five years, I thought like, yeah, this is a winemaker and I could do it. And then I look back at what I knew and what I was doing in 2000, I look at it now and I'm like, wow, okay. So it's that, like I said, it's that ongoing, I think any, any like, humble or um, uh, um, not, I'm trying to search for the right words, uh, down to earth, more rooted winemakers would say the same thing that, you know, it's this progression. You know, we've, what we've been talking about, you know, the variability and the, all this things, this sort of reminds me, she was a nurse, so human physiology and medicine is constantly changing and they're constantly learning. It's, it never ends. I mean, it literally never, it's just gonna keep going and going and going. And so they call themselves, you know, when they're, when they're doing, they, that's why they say a doctor is practicing medicine. Is he has a medical practice. We have a winemaking practice, okay? We're practicing winemaking is what we're doing. We're, we're, we get one chance a year. We only get one chance a year, yeah. and we're consistent yeah. enough, we're pretty good enough at it, I think, that, you know, that we're able to, you know, get it out of the public is good, and it's like, and of course, you know, like in the medical, if you practice wrong, somebody dies maybe, or whatever, and none of that happens here in the wine That's industry, but the analogy is kind of the same. <laughs> I can replant a plant, but you can't, can't like Yeah, it. right. The analogy is still the same, and I refer to ourselves as the wine doctors. When we show up in the cellar during harvest, you know, we have the, when we're the wine doctors, we're going to be crushing some grape and pressing that grape and crushing some other red grape later that day. Those are the work projects that we're going to do, but the first thing we do is we have various wines that are in the tanks that are under, they're either haven't been started, we haven't pitched the yeast yet, they haven't started ferment or they're in various stages of ferment or whatever and there's temperature, thermodynamic, you know, things that you might want to do, there's other, there's a host of various different things that you might be interested in doing if you thought you had to intervene. We're not much of an interventionist type winemaking team, but the first thing, and I learned this out at Henry Estate, is because we'd have so much to do that we'd start doing it. It's like, oh, I'll do, I'll run numbers on the tanks and we'll we'll get the punch down later. Well, guess what? With morning punch down didn't happen until one or two in the afternoon because we get busy doing all this stuff. So it's like, first things first, we're the wine doctors. We come in, these are our patients, and we need to, each one needs to be, we need to go bedside to each one of them and so we'll be pulling the samples and we'll check the temperature and we'll check the sugar and we'll do a little sensory on it and if it's all going good the way 
it should be or whatever, then it doesn't take too much time and then we move on to the next one and we're, do we need to make a temperature uh, correction? Uh, is there anything else that we need to do to the ferment this day? If not, then you know, we move on to the next patient and we just kind of work our way around. And so there's an assessment of the wine patients because the winery is really, I refer to it as this, this neonatal microbiological neonatal facility is what we've got because they're changing and this these these fermentations are happening the the wines or the wines to be are are very unstable what we see on one day is not what we see on the next or the next week or whatever and again we have this this vision of what we want to do with this grape in terms of making wine and so we want to adjust our course like when we're flying the plane you know we have a course that we're that we might have to adjust course because of weather or you know a variety of different issues or whatever but it's a real seat of the pants kind of kind of thing so i do talk about us being the wine doctor we've got to visit our patients make the cooling adjustments a lot of times if i don't have solenoid control on the tank so they're manual adjustments on the cooling if i do it in the morning and i need cold on for four hours then i put it on while i'm doing my work and then shut it off if I wait until the end of the day to run that number on the tank, I'm heading home that night. That means I got to come back down at midnight or something and adjust the cooling on the tank. If you we, have to. Yeah, we'll do it if we have to, yeah. but why don't you be smart enough to do things in the right order so you don't have to do that, you know? So first thing when we do when we come in is check all the all the tanks, you know, and take a good look at them and make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, you know, as the wine doctors, right? It's my, yeah. Well, if we have reds going, though, uh, fermenting, we'll tend to them normally first. First. They'd be the first. We get first. Because you might want a morning punch down, then we might want a mid-afternoon punch down, and want an evening punch down. So, yeah, the first ones, if the reds are fermenting, we got whites and stuff. The first wines we go to in the morning are the reds, and we tend to them and a punch down and assess them, and then we move to the whites, and then we can come back to them, you know, the reds later. Yeah. So wine doctors. Making our rounds. Like that. <laughs> so tell me about like starting season sellers. Obviously, you mentioned it's a, a collaborative project for the two of you. Which uh, so tell me about uh, when you decided to get started, how you how you went about it, and what you kind of were setting out to do with season sellers. Look at that one. I'll let you start on that one. I've been talking more anyway. So yeah. Well, um, we knew uh, we uh, well when we started season sellers we we wanted to go do something on our own and and we had been pouring and uh, making uh, cool climate varietals for years um, and uh, so uh, we decided we wanted to do something different than that because I guess you could say we were kind of felt stagnant and kind of not bored but well kind of stagnant, there was something more know? out there in the wine world for us that we hadn't found yet we we're searching for searching for more answers out there more something more more something more well you know and when you pour for people too you know it's like uh, you get a feeling for the customer the consumer that they might want something more too because I mean, there are a lot of Pinot Noirs and Pinot Gris on the, on the shelf. And um, uh, we wanted to kind of have our niche 
and do something different. And, and have so, a story. And have a story. You gotta have a story, story too. To yeah, yeah. And so um, we kind of uh, had been going down south visiting other wineries and down in the Rogue and the Applegate and which is encompassed with the Umpqua Valley in southern Oregon. And um, uh, so we found that they were doing uh, uh, clarets and more a lot of warm climate varietals down there, which we had never really played with much. Although Rhone you varietals. Rhone and Bordeaux varietals down there, and uh, I guess. You at Henry Estates, you'd done some we cab had, and we had an experimental yeah, plots plot of small amounts, just a few rows of this and yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Up at um, Airly, uh, cool climate. My parents planted Foch. some Cabernet Sauvignon. Well, we planted <laughs> a row of cab at first, and that that got ripped out after three years because it was like there's no way. There's no way. So our other red was Marichal Foch that yeah. we did. And, uh, you know, people like it because it's something different from, you know, Pinot Noir. They're looking for, because Pinot Noir drinkers are adventuresome people and they like to try different things. And so, anyway, um, and um, when I was working in the vineyard at Henry Estates in that experimental plot, I, the Molbeck that they had planted was like, Ripe about the same time. I mean, it was three weeks ahead of all, any of the all other. Of or, the other. Uh, we had cab and Franck it was in like, there. oh my gosh, this is so good, you know. But here in the Umpqua Valley, we're mainly cool climate, so that was on a hot year. You know, it just is consistent, and so. Anyway, we decided to, um, and then we look. We're out looking. Well, with our marketing, we're out. We're in a lot of stores and stuff and looking on the shelf. And it, the only Molbecks you could find were from Argentina. Or, and then, of course, uh, Viognier was all from the Rhone region, you know, in France. So, um, and they could grow it really well down there. So that's kind of... Uh, why we decided to go in that direction to not uh, focus on Pinot Noir and the cool climates, which we had made for years already. And so... What did, what did you have to adapt in your winemaking sort of style with different varietals than you were used to? Um, well, every different... You know, every different grape varietal is different. Uh, making Pinot Noir is not like making Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot, um, they all have their little idiosyncrasies. That, that they must be one, weed eating. They're weed eating right up against the side of the building. I hope, I hope this is not yeah, just, too much yeah. of a uh, yeah. <laughs> um, And so, uh, you know, I'd spent most of my, you know, the bulk of my work being in mostly Pinot Noir. Like I said, we had the experimental plantings at Cab Sauv and, and Merlot, and we had some Cab Franc. We had a little bit of everything out there, some not Viennier everything. And Viognier, we had some Muscat out now. Yeah, and lots of different I stuff. I mean, the, the, we had 
They had a couple, they had a little bit of Petit Verdot out there, but you know, it wouldn't ripen, it wouldn't set very well. And the problem was is that when the grapes would come in, you know, we had a Lugana 3 December Crusher and we had a, you know, the D. Franceschi press was a 35 hectoliter press, you know, and they're bringing me like 150 pounds of grape, you know. And I'm wanting to make this into, you know, something that you can try to, like, well, is this something we want to move forward with or whatever, but it was never enough. Honestly, I can tell you what, growing up from around winery <laughs> since I was little, I'm, I'm a really good commercial winemaker and I'm terrible. I'm absolutely terrible home winemaker. <laughs> I, I've, some home winemakers talk to me about, it's like, don't even talk to me about home winemaking because if I'm trying to make wine in carboys and stuff like that, it's not I, It's not going to be good. I mean, I need enough to fill a barrel or, or two. Anyway. You know, I need enough to fill a barrel or two. And uh, so those varietals that we had, even though I had experience with them, um, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't straight across. I couldn't like compare that to what it'd be like to try to commercially produce those varietals in terms of how we go about making one crushing the grape, pressing the grape, you know. Thank God they were reds and we weren't filtering because they're itty bitty batches of white and then you're trying to pass them through, you know, a 40 by 40 plate and frame filter. I mean, the whole wine would get absorbed right in the filter. It just, it doesn't work. You know, you gotta have a, a decent amount of it, you know, but, um, you got to play with some Viognier from when you were Yeah, so <clears throat> we had a little bit of Viognier and we actually did some custom winemaking for uh, Melrose Vineyard, Melrose Winery at the time before they had their winery. And uh, you know, it all starts with the grape. Um, I implore all, if there's customers and wine lovers out there that are actually, we call them consumers. I know that's not a very, um, it's not the best term for them. I hope they're not offended when we call you, cons I'm a consumer too, but the <laughs> wine, we look at the wine consumers, they're the one with the money that are buying these wines that we're making, right? We need them out there or we wouldn't be in business. But, and, and I presume, you know, that most of them have never been around the vineyard or the winery during harvest time when the grapes come in. Um, I'm astonished, honestly, at the number of people in the trade that, uh, wine buyers for stores and restaurants, wholesale, the sales team, the manager, you know, the wine writers, the bloggers, like all these people that are into evaluating and they know what you start asking questions and they know wine. Yeah. I mean, they're experts on wine. They, they know more worldly styles of wine than I do because I'm in my cellar all the time. But when you come to talking to them about grape or juice, they know nothing. Like many of them have never even tried Viognier grape juice versus Mueller-Turgau grape juice before we pitched these to make the wine. And I'm like, I can't even wrap my brain around that. Because like I said, I was, grew up in the industry since I was a kid. And I love the juice. I wasn't like really, you know, appreciating on a level for quality wine production. I was just, it wasn't distinguishing between the Chardonnay juice and the Pinot Gris juice. It was just really good juice, you know. <laughs> but but as you learn, as you get to be a winemaker, it all starts with that. Like I said, when the grapes come in and we first press out the juice and then we do a little bit of numbers and I'm looking just a little bit of sensory and that first little look at it, we got a really good look, a guess at what the quality level that it is. And for most people, I'd put it in front of them. I could put some mediocre juice in front. People go, oh, yeah, it's awesome, you know? And then I got the really good stuff there and go, now do you see the difference? This is gonna make, you know, 
massively approved big commercial type, you know, I don't want to name off some big California mm. brand or something, but you know, it's just going to be average wine, you know, if there's no, again, there's no way to take it up the ladder. You can take it down the ladder from quality, but you can't take it up the ladder. So, and then this other one's just going to make killer. So it all starts with the grape and we, you know, again, we're running numbers at Henry State Winery and checking the patients and I've got Mueller Terrigal grape juice and I got Riesling grape juice and I've got, you know, Chardonnay grape juice and I've got, you know, Pinot Noir grape juice, it's must because it's all, and I've got all these different grape juices and they're all grape juice and not a one of them tastes anything like the others. I mean, most people's concept of grape juice is Welch's, you know, in the store, Concord based, you know, maybe a raspberry flavored one or a white one. That's their whole concept of grape juice. I can't even drink Welch's or any of that. It, it, it tastes absolutely, it just tastes like crap to me and it's so terrible. Terrible because I'm used to these juices that we create first because to make wine I got to first of all I got to get I got to make the juice first and then we, the wine comes later and they're all so different and then even this Melrose grape that wasn't really the ripest stuff that we had in you know probably I don't think they had anything that came in over 23 sugar and sugar I'm just going to point this out sugar is not um, really anything more than a vague indication of the ripeness of the fruit so we don't choose to have our people bring the grape in or start the harvest process based on sugar alone there's a range of different variables that we use and I'm going to tell you bricks and sugar is down at like number four or five there's at least three or four other things that we're looking at that indicate quality ripeness and all that maturity and all the things that we're looking for in a grape that's going to make a juice that's going to make a wine. But like, you know, the Mueller Turgau would be like Trix cereal, like orange, orange and cherry red and that lemon yellow. You're just getting all the, and you'd get to the Pinot Gris and it'd be just more honey and this peri kind of apple things are really, you know, they're, they're very, and then I'd hit the Viognier and I'd be like, oh my God, this stuff, this is like, it's like, it's like having a whole, like taking those um, tropical lifesavers, you know, the tropical ones. It's like taking the whole pack of tropical lifesavers and putting the whole thing in your mouth at once. I mean, you're getting, like, I'm getting pineapple and passion and guava and banana and wild, like, you know, not just navel orange, like some, it's mandarin or tangerine or there's something going. I mean, it's just, it's stuff, with, it's just amazing. So when we went to start season sellers, I think I'm coming back around to try to add on to what you're saying. We wanted to go after, because we've done Pinot Noir and Pinot Green, it's here to stay, it's great. What the Willamette Valley's done is awesome. And we wouldn't be in the, where we're at in the Southern Oregon wine industry if it wasn't for, what well, I'm always done, you know, internationally, nationally, internationally for recognition of Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris or whatever. So I'm not going to go there. But we were like, with our years of experience and everything, what's the next best, what's perfectly grown in Southern Oregon, especially if we can reach down to the south to the, our neighbors in the Rogue Valley and get some really good, what's, what, what are they just kind of knock out of the park, out of the ground, you know, that's going to be the next great varietal, the next thing coming, you know and be on a breaking wave instead of being on a wave that's already washed up on the beach and is, you know, not that Pinot Noir is washed on the beach and coming back in any way. I'm just trying to draw these analogies or whatever. And so, and again, it all starts back with the juice, you know. Mm -hmm. And so we get this Viognier juice from Daisy Creek Vineyard down in Jacksonville, Russ and 
Unfortunately, get Margaret passed away. We get the grapes, get the grapes from, <coughs> from the Rogue Valley down there in Jacksonville. And, you know, we press this grape off into juice, and this stuff is like pog. I mean, passion, orange guava. It's just erupting out of this. And so it's like, I'm looking at that, my memories of making VA for Melrose mm -hmm. and what they perfectly grow. And then it's like, now, if we can get people to pronounce the name, you know, and we make That's it in this style, and we make it in this style. They're, they're, you can't lose. I mean, this is, this is stuff is amazing. I mean, you know, it's different than Pinot Gris, but it's similar. It's a fruit forward style. We do limited, very limited oak barrel fermentation on just 15%. The rest is all done, you know, stainless steel because you've got these just incredible varietal fruit quality characteristics and you want to guide that. You want to enhance that. You don't want to get in the way with too much oak. I think a lot of winemakers over oak the Viognier. They're trying to make like Chardonnay and I don't like, you know. Well, it's like it's a lot of winemakers trying to make Syrah like Cabernet Sauvignon. They're just trying to extract every gram of tannin they can out of the fermenter and it's like Syrah is not, if you look at Europe, which is, you know, we're here making new world wines, but we're using old world grapes. And you can't help but not look at Europe as some, as a, just a standard. It's not like we're going to try to make that. I mean, we can't really make Burgundian like the way no. they do in the Cote d'Or with that, you know, limestone thing. and. You know, at Henry Estate, early we made a lot of dry Alsatian Gewurz demeanors, but I've visited, like, outside of Colmar before. I've been at Pierre Spar. I've seen these vineyards at Slate Rock. I mean, we just don't have that here. But that doesn't mean we can't, like, emulate or in some way try to fashion our wines in that direction, you know. So you're always looking. You look at Rhone, and it's like, you know, it's raw. It's blended with Grenache and Mavedre. And, you know, they're not really ripping, extracted, you know, big big wines, and yet I think a lot of winemakers try to do that. But back to the V&A, gorgeous tropical fruits. As a winemaker, before if I'm making Chardonnay or Pinot Gris and I get a, just a whisper of, of tropical quality in that wine, I'm just, I'm wet my pants. I mean, it's just like, oh my God. And then you get the V&A and it's just like, it's so, tri it's just, it's all tropical, you know? It's just unbelievable. So we're like, okay, Viognier, that's the white wine. We're gonna take this grape, we're gonna make, you know, and again, a lot of, uh, Viennese made a lot of different styles, so it, you know it can be over ripened. And I hear people with it, and I think, and again, I'm just going to say California in general, but it's just it's just a general statement or whatever. But I've seen it in Washington too. It can be over ripened. It can be kind of almost insipidly like sweet, even when it's dry and very perfumey okay. and higher in alcohol. And it's not, it, and sometimes it can pick up an oily quality like uh, Gewurztraminer's can and stuff. That's really not the style that we're looking for. And then, like I said, often over oak where they bury the fruit. And then uh, and then uh, easier to just ferment it bone dry, like the way we make our Sauv Blanc. You know, our Sauv Blanc's fermented to complete dryness. It's the way, to me, Sauv Sauvignon Blanc should be. It's the way they always are. Um, but the VNA, like Pinot Gris and like the Alsatian style Gewurztraminer's I make, I like to, we like to leave a little threshold sugar. So six, seven grams per liter, about 0 0.6, 0 0.7%, 0.5, somewhere in there. We're not, we use the numbers for in winemaking to just kind of get us generally into a target zone. And from there, it's all done sensory because every vintage is different. The acidity, the pH is different. So you can't just say, oh, I like stopping my VNA at 0.6%, that's right, my number, right. you know, you just can't do that, you know, it's 0.6 at target, but like depending on everything else, we'll watch it, especially as it's coming down and sugar at the very tail end of the ferment. So the three main characteristics there then are uh, uh, just a hint of residual sugar, uh, limited 
you know, neutral oak, oak. oak, mostly neutral oak. It's only 15%. That barrel is actually, so at ambient temperature, that barrel will rip through ferment in about eight or 10 days, you know, it'll hit maybe 80 or something, um, and it'll finish quick, and then we stir it. We surly it like it's Chardonnay. So we'll surly that barrel with a stir once, once a week. week. You know, but in the meantime, the rest of it's in this tank back here and it's going at about 43 degrees, really slow. And it takes about four or five weeks and you're able to retain much more fruity characteristics in the wine. I have a lot of more volatile if you can run these slow ferments. If you want fruity white wines, you have to ferment cold and slow. There's just, I can make Viognier in an IBC plastic tote with a bunch of head space on it and no temperature control. And it, like I've said before, you'll have Viognier. It will not be this Viognier. You won't, it won't be even close to the caliber of this wine that we can. So I'm giving away some of my winemaking secrets here. But it's no, it's no secret. There's, there's no know, recipe. There's no real recipe. Um, <laughs> Uh, to, to it, but uh, that little bit of barrel fermentation adds some mid-palate texture along with that residual sugar. The little bit of RS will allow the wine to play amazingly well on the table with spicy food. So Asian, Cajun, Caribbean, like you, you name it, it, it really rocks with uh, with spicy foods. But it doesn't have to be spicy at all. Creamy dishes, your seafood, you know, pasta, creamy, fettuccine, seafood, whatever, clam linguine, whatever it is, all the white meats, fish, shellfish, chicken, pork, spicy, creamy. This style of Viognier is like, it's about the most amazingly versatile table white wine I've ever encountered in the kitchen. I've never seen another white wine that can go so many different directions with the white meats. And so, and it was interesting, it's like the, actually the style of Viognier that we like to make, the one that, that that vision of that goal of that style of Chardonnay, because I think a lot of winemakers, they just throw a lot of darts at the walls around the winery and trying to hit a target. But we actually have a, a target clearly in mind of what it is that we want. And we actually go source the grape to produce. You know, is this the way the chef would go source his meats or whatever to produce this dish, right? He just can't have, you know, whatever food vendor showing up with whatever kind of thing and be able to achieve what he's trying to do in that kitchen there he's sourcing out certain stuff you know whatever um well and the grape and, has to be allowed to get to the ripeness to and, get and those flavors that's the third that, component that is it's the ripe fruit crucial yeah yeah right you don't have the flavor you can't come up with it yeah ripe but not overripe so then viognier um when it's not ripe, the citrus profile is more in the grapefruit range, but when it's ripe, it's like I said, it's just guava, passion orange, mandarin orange, pineapple, banana. We're just getting, like everything comes off my tongue's all kind of revolves in a tropical range of things, which to me are the pinnacle of the aromas and flavor descriptors that you can get at white wine. So, so we, we knew Viognier was the answer. We just got to get everybody to be able to say it and understand it a little bit more. And I just tell them, you know, you haven't seen a lot of it because the Willamette Valley can't do it. And so we, we, you're just seeing it from some of the warmer climate, not only in Southern Oregon, they can do a bang up job with it out there in the Columbia Valley. Those guys out there in the Hood River Dalles area are going to be able to knock this one out of the park as well. This should be their focus white, I would think. Um, they'd be, I think they'd be amiss if they weren't after Viognier because it, and so, Balanced enough, it's got that little bit of sweetness, you got the acid balance, you got all this tropical flavor. We're hitting about 14 alcohol, good ripe fruit. It's not hot on the finish from the ethanol, but it lends a richness and an overall quality to it. We usually win 
multiple gold medals with our VNA in commercial competitions. Like, do you remember the last time we didn't win at least like? And we don't enter very many competitions. We right. probably enter about half a dozen a year, and we usually win at least two, at least two gold medals out of those four or six uh, with the VNA. So this is our warm country's answer to the uh, Willamette Valley and their Pinot Gris. Which again, I love Pinot Gris; it's great. But there's other, you know, there's other wines in the world. So we're talking about edge of the box varietals that we're marketing. So in the middle of the white wine boxes, Pinot Gris and Chardonnay, people just they just can't hardly get their blinders open to be after something else. And once you get that box a little bit bigger, varietals like Viognier and Sauvignon Blanc and you know, some others like Albarino and others that are grown well down here or orbiting a little farther out. We were working uh, for Gruner the first Veltliner. couple, yeah, Gruner Veltliner. We were working for the first couple, three years with a Marsan Roussan blend, but honestly, we couldn't sell it very well just because I think those varietals are orbiting too, too far. far out there. They're like Pluto and Uranus, so people just can't get there, you know, where they can get to Viognier, they can maybe get to Albarino's probably more like Jupiter. So it's out there a little bit, but it's not as far out as Marsan and Roussan. Yeah. Viognier's <laughs> just orbiting right in around that box. It's just, I just know it's hovering right in there. And once people see a style like this, they're, it's, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna catch on and they're gonna, they're gonna love this thing. So that was the story on the white. And then what about the red? How did we figure out? How did we figure out what red it was going to be? Well, you we were it. we were down tasting some. We were uh, we had some clients um, wanting us to source some reds for them, and so we had the opportunity to go. You bulk, know, bulk, some bulk, bulk wines. Wine. They wanted to. From pull in some Merlot or some of this that were available in bulk Syrah, and have us Syrah and Syrah. have us bottle it for them. But we we were able in some of these wineries to taste some of the others. And I, you know, Molbeck is out there. Argentina has it. I mean, it's all over the place. We went to wineries like was, Del Rio yeah. and, and um, um, Roxy Ann Winery Roxy, and yeah. Wildridge Creek, Greg and Carr out there in the yeah. Applegate Valley, and they'd show some of the bulk wines that were available. Yeah. And, and then we came across some bulk uh, mall backs, backs that were available that they'd made. And I remember Jennifer, we were in the lab there at uh, Roxy, Roxy Ann, and he brought in a bunch of beakers, some different stuff, and had a graduated cylinder and some glasses. And, like, you know, we're sitting in their lab. He's like, Yeah, man, have some fun, see what you're. And we're looking at, like, you know, and we're still trying to debate, like, what's the red focus going to be? We got the. I, we knew the white was going to be Viognier. It says, What's the next red that's going to be just hotter than a lava rock and perfectly grown down here? And then we came across some of these uh, batches. And I remember the look on your face. You stuck your nose in that glass and pulled it up. And you were like, Oh my God. And you taste it. You know, it's like blackberry and marionberries and violets and just lavender and big uh, and full on the palate but soft and round and tannins and and uh, just the perfect balance on it and so we did a little more and we walked away with that uh experience and then you know that was in our brain while we were doing research and looking and 
you know, like she said, grocery store. You'd go in the grocery store set and you'd see, you know, the Pinot Noir category and the Cab Sauv and the Merlot. They all got their sign up there Syrah, and all that. And then, all that. Yeah, you got it. Well, usually Syrahs were in the other reds. It's yeah. usually, you know, Pinot Noir, Cab Sauv, yeah. Merlot, about the only ones they actually hang a sign over, like this is the section in the store where you get the white. And then you got the other reds, you know, so you got Zins and the Petite Syrahs and the Cab Francs and everything else is in there. And, you know, you'd go hunt for domestic Malbec and, like Jennifer said, I got it and wasn't there. You could not find it, and you know, if you wanted to find the ball back, you had to go to the import section, and there's you know, all the Argentine and stuff. And they've been growing Malbec in southern Oregon down there. It's nothing new, man. It's been in the ground for 30 years like these other varietals, but it was never looked at as a singular varietal or a standalone varietal. I think it was always just. Malbec's a blending grape, you know, you blend it into Cab Sauv and whatever, and that's, I think that's the way it was kind of approached. And so um, uh, we thought, well, well, this is, this is either really good or really bad. Why is there no domestic Malbec out there, and can we produce domestic Malbec? And we know we're going to be more expensive than the big mass-produced Argentina ones, but like, you know, compared to what we saw that was available bulk from Roxiana, the tanks, like, I make anything like that or better, and like, this is, we got something here. This is like being, and so then you look at it and it's like, well, hey, now look at this picture. Like they do all these Bordeaux varietals down there. They grow a lot of Cab Sauv and Merlot down there or whatever. And the Malbec comes in like a week to a week and a half ahead of the Cab Sauv and Merlot. It's the earliest ripening of all the Bordeaux varietals. Um, and that was another reason why, because we're kind of the, alter, the, the alternate varietal Wine. winery. And so when we look at the Bordeaux, range, you know, the first one obviously is Cabernet Sauvignon, everybody loves, this is the most popular red wine in the world, right? But it's like, well, there's a million players out there, California knocks it out of the park, Washington's killer, that's not even talking about European, you know, Bordeaux or wherever, it's just, it's all over the place. It's like, this is this an arena we want to jump into? It's like, man, we're going to get slaughtered, you know? And Jennifer and I strongly feel that the world does not need another Merlot. <laughs> it's not... It's done. It's it's over. Like, well, and I'm not it's, and I'm not going. I'm not taking the sideways approach or whatever. It's just as a wine maker and a wine producer, all the Bordeaux varietals are somewhat one dimensional. The least dimensional of all of them is Merlot. It's for and, us and anyway. I, I, it, it, it's it's less dimensional than any of the others when it's even done kind of right. And I understand why it's so popular. It's just it's a big mouthful around you know red fruit and. I get it. It's, you know, because so many of the things, it's got to be played to the masses, right? They just, that's why, you know, I mean, Pinot Noir takes a little bit better understanding of the nuances and the layers, and it's not all about power. You know, if Cabernet Sauvignon's a freight train, then, you know, Pinot Noir is a sports car, right? You put it on like a jet suit, right? You don't get in it and ride it down the track, like, and blow over anything that's in front of it, like Cab Sauv, right? So, but, even though we're sourcing grapes from these different producers, it's it's imperative that we get ripe grape. You know that consistent every Jennifer's year, even on cool years. I mean, if you're going to be a commercial winery, maker, it's got to be. Go Thirty years ago, you could get away with these green apple tart, Oregon chardonnays, or whatever. But like, green you, yeah, green bean cabs or whatever. Yeah. It's just that day is long gone. There are so many players and producers out there in the American wine industry now, and the quality level, for various reasons, some of which we were talked to just a while ago, has gone up dramatically, which is a great thing for the consumer because even at 
you know, I always tell people you don't have to spend a lot of money on a bottle of wine. You know, our Malbec ranges from 22 to 30 a bottle or whatever. If you do spend a lot of money on a bottle, it damn well better be good. But you don't, you know, there's some 15, I've been impressed with some $15 bottles out there from some producers that are like, oh, this is pretty good, you know, this is something you can have on, you know. I realize that our wine, we don't produce wines that are everybody's like everyday drinking wine, you know. People still need that Wednesday evening cheeseburger, pizza, spaghetti, we just need some red wine, you know, it doesn't gotta be Opus One, you know, kinda kind of thing like that. So, but it's imperative that the grapes that we get are ripe. And then, so, and we're, we're the alternate varietal winery. So when you look at the others, like, you know, Cab Franc, Cab Franc's one where, you know, I've had some that were just mind-blowing. They're really, really good. But I've had so many that are just, they're weak, they're thin. Um, they're acidic, they're over vegetal, they're just, you know, I understand why it's a blending grape, you know, because you can't get, yeah. you know, and then, yeah. petite, yeah. go ahead. Even the Rogue Valley doesn't have enough heat to consistently get cab fire. Yeah, normal to warm years, they can pull it off down there, but cooler years like 10 and 11, they're, even the Rogue Valley, they can't get the cab franc off, you know, right. And then Petit Verdot, another one, really late ripener. What are the chances you're gonna rock the world with Petit Verdot, you know, I you know, I don't know. And then, you know, then you got Carbonier, the Bordeaux Varietal number six. There's another one, very rare. Thought, everybody thought the thing was extinct until 1994. And hello, now it's, you know, it's available in Chile. We actually uh, produce, uh, we make a, a Carbonier, Carbonier and we blend it with Sangiovese into our super Tuscan blend called Phoenix. So uh, we have a lot of experience with that varietal. So that kind of just went back to like, wow, it's the earliest ball back. It's the early frightening of all the Bordeaux varietals. Um, it's easy. We don't have the pronunciation that we got with Viognier. It's like you can, anybody never even heard it could probably look at it and get the word out, right? Pretty straightforward. Thanks to Argentina, most red wine drinkers know what it is. It's the worldwide known, you know, grape varietal. And so we moved in 2012, we went back to Roxanne and said, hey, you guys make some wonderful Malbec, why don't you think, think about selling us some grape? You know, because I know that, again, that whole thing that I said before, if the Malbec wine that they're making is awesome, the grape's gotta be good, because it only stays the same or goes down, it don't get any, it doesn't go better, you can't, right? That makes sense, right? So um, they're like, well, we've never sold grape to anybody before. Um, they normally don't do that, but they had extra Malbec coming up over mm -hmm. the next few seasons and <clears throat> were willing to work with us. So, um, but it's, you know, there's some difficulties because a lot of outfits that are into like, Selling grape, you know, when you contract the grape price with a seller that usually includes delivery, they're going to bring it to the winery. And that was Roxanne's thing. They're like, but we don't, you know, we're not in the grape selling business. So you want it, you're bringing your bins down, we're picking on that, you're, then we tell you when it's done, and you come down and get the bins and take it away, you know. So Scott and Jennifer had to become Truckers. truck driver, I had to become truckers. This is like <laughs> truck and co-pilot. When we grab the pickup truck and a trailer and head down to, you know, Rogue Valley to pick up some grape and haul it back over the passes on the freeway, you know, and get it home and get it here in the cellar and stuff like that. So we've, um, Roxy Ann used their Malbec to go into their Claret blend, and now I think they're making one out on their own. It might be for the tasting room only. For their, yeah. It's been 10 years now since we first bought Malbec from Roxy Ann, and we were one of the very first wineries in Oregon to kind of feature it, you know, as our forward 
red varietal number one. And from my understanding now, this is 2022, from, I, I could be wrong, but if I understand right, Malbec's the fastest growing red varietal in Washington now for the last two years. They're planting amazing, the most of what's going in the ground up there red-wise and what I heard is Malbec. And so we're gonna, that, so that, verifies that validates to me what we were thinking 10 years ago down here you know in southern Oregon that this this grape rattles on its way you know and if you can get a hold of grape of that caliber and we can make wine you know we again we can stay out of the way we call ourselves the caretakers of the fruit so when the when you have superior grape it it'll almost make itself um, and the best thing that we can do is to stay out of its way and just be there when necessary, but not to intervene or be in trying to influence its process, you know, too heavily. So we're, I call ourselves the caretakers of the fruit and sitting in the barrels right there and we're, we're sweeping the floor underneath, you know, and just keeping things tidy around there while they're doing their thing. And you just, that's, you know, and, and and you know, don't top them too often because we don't want a lot of air to get into the barrel. But on a you know couple three month you know interval, we'll pull the silicon bungs and get in there and do our sensory and do our lab work and top them all up nice and full and stuff. We love we love Malbec, hearty roast steak stews, and love chevre goat cheese. Anything with the chev in it is a is a out of the park with it. And what's interesting also, you want to talk about its other attribute? Yeah, it's one of the only reds that um, complement spicy, hearty dishes. So it likes uh, anything with chorizo in it. You know, jambalayas, things yeah. like that. Works my so. jambalaya with a cayenne in it. Um, I, mm. uh, in all my years of wine and food pairing, I've had two anomalies that I've never, it's been 30, 40 years now, 30 years plus, and I still have not, a lot of them have never been able to solve the anomalies. One of them is uh, wine and Mexican food. I, I don't know what it is, but I compare wine with about every other ethnic cuisine in the world, but I have this really ongoing difficult tr trouble pairing wine with Mexican food. I don't know what it's, uh, this, uh, the, all the, the corn in, you know, masa type thing. That I don't know what it is. It's just a hard match. So I always say that the best wine with uh, Mexican food is cerveza or margarita. That's the best <laughs> wine to, to have Although with this a, goes great with a mole. It does, yeah. The Malbeco actually does. And the Carmen, yeah. It does the spice yep. with the cinnamon in there and the chocolate and the mole mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So um, my other anomaly has been red wine and spicy food. For me, and again, this is very subjective, what we're talking about, but most red wines do not handle spicy foods very well. Um, you know, Cab Sauv, Merlot, I don't think Pinot Noir is a varietal that handles spicy dishes very well. I see it. You go into an Asian place and they got curries and they got Pinot Noir and the, like a Pinot Noir don't go with curry. I mean, it doesn't for me anyway. I, you know, um, and it doesn't take much pepper on a steak and Cab Sauv, it's like, to me, it's like fan in the fire. I mean, it's just like throwing gasoline on a fire, you know, it's just, and again, this is very subjective, this wine and food pairing thing. There's, you know, you want to look at 
some, I mean, there's one way to look at it. You want to compliment things and bring, or you want to elevate things, you know, that, I don't know, you know, that throwing gas on the fire thing doesn't work for me very well. But if a wine's got a deep core of fruit, they can handle, you know, um, higher alcohols like a Zinfandel. We're not high alcohol, we're usually around 14 with them all back. But it takes something like that to be able to handle the spice of some dishes, you know. So all my spicy dishes out of the wok and these other things all revolve around chicken or seafood so that I can be out there pumping it with the white wines, you know. But it's like what are you doing if what do you do for red wine if you're doing that spicy, you know, Mongolian beef stir fry or something, you know? And we were one of my first experiences with it, we were having a meal after we did a pouring at a restaurant in Eugene on Fifth Street Market. It's not there anymore. It's called the Lucky Noodle. Um, they use some of our wines. I don't know if you've ever been there or not, but they were, uh, it was funny. It was like, it was a Lucky Noodle. And it was like, well, what kind of noodle? And you go in there, like half the menu was Italian noodles and half the menu was Asian noodles. It was all noodles, but every dish was noodles, but it was like two totally different cuisines of noodles, which as a foodie, you're like, oh, that's great. And I, I tend to go more toward the, Asian noodles. I love I love Asian food and and that spice and how you handle it with food. And we had a we had that salad. It was like the Tears of the Tiger salad. It was that marinated skirt steak on a salad with that hot Asian oil, you know, and I mean like a couple, three bites and you'll stop before you fork in that fourth one. I mean, it's, you, you're trying to catch your breath a little bit. You're it's crying. pretty, it's pretty hot, you know, <laughs> it is tears of the tiger. It's right, it's right up in there where we like it, but we were chasing it with the transparency, you know, and it was working. The transparency white blend was, with the spice. was doing the spice, but with the steak in my mouth, I felt like I had marbles in my mouth with this white wine, you know, it's like, geez, you let the, find a red wine that would go with this and we paired it with a, we put it with a straw that we had at the time. Nuts, two thumbs down, it was like, this is bad, you know? And then just for kicks, I threw a Merlot in the glass, or the Malbec, excuse me, there you can call it Merlot. <laughs> Somebody slapped me. Um, uh, we, we, we shot the Malbec at it and like, oh my God, look at this. This is actually works. I had to go back and do it again. It's just, am I imagining this? Or like I'm getting that hot oil and the steak and everything. And then I got them all back and it's like, it yeah. kind of calms it down a little bit. And you got the marinated steak and you got a red wine, which is what you're supposed to do, you know? And it's just all, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Jennifer, try this. I'm all back with, come back, try the Syrah with this. And it's like, eh, it's terrible again. And to come back and just all back in here and try it with it. It's just like, unbelievable, it's unbelievable. So that's a great attribute of the Malbec too, is that it uh, pairs incredibly well with um, spicy dishes, or at least moderately spicy food. If you go off the deep end with the with it, then you know, um, probably not. You know, you're back to uh, very cold white that's got some sugar. You're going to have to have some sweetness because that's a pretty standard thing. I mean, even in the kitchen, it's a heat. You got to heat, and you want to work it, and it's got to be sweet. So, I mean, it's that's why, you know, uh, mango habanero, you know, that's why they, you know, that's, that's why this is coming together, you know, and it's, and it's true. It always works that way. I've been told if you're ever in the back of those Thai kitchens, you'd be surprised how much sugar is going in those curries because you can't just hit it with the curry and curry and curry and curry. So you're up in the spice level and then they got to get sugar in there to provide this kind of balance and stuff like that. So you can tell we're foodies. <laughs> we like to eat, like to cook. I like to, I mean, what we're doing 
you know, making wine, it's a very hedonistic thing, and the food is the same way. It's extreme, it, to me, it's extreme hedonism. So we have to eat a couple of times a day to survive. And so we tend to make this, we've built this ritual around the whole thing, right? It's vast, I mean, it's like a Mandela. It's got a lot of different, like, factions of it that come together that you can endorse all of them or parts of it or whatever but we do this dance around you know the food and that's why like in the house like the most important room is the kitchen right i mean and when you're even at when you're at somebody's house or it's a house party or we got friends over and we're yucking it up and having a great time like where where does it always gravitate to it always gravitates to the kitchen we're always in the kitchen you know, it's or we're not far from it you know it's like it's that you know it's the most important room we can say bathrooms too because we got that and the things it's got to happen to but <laughs> i don't know if that goes so far as being hedonism or whatever but we're not congregating <laughs> but the, yeah we're not all congregating in the bathroom <laughs> one at a time but the beginning of it the hedonism of the food and then the wine and the whole thing you know starts to go or beer craft beer craft cider now we've got all these craft distilleries it's just it's amazing this gastronomic explosion that's happened in the last 30 years you know because like when I was a kid like it was like you know it's Chinese food you know the Chinese food that's all like the, the and then like some Thai restaurants started showing up but there wasn't many back in the day it was like you know you went to the Chinese restaurant if you wanted Asian food and now you know we've got Vietnamese and Korean and and like you know Filipino and all this stuff's coming out they're all different you know and they're all so good I love Asian food but it's um, you know sushi like when I would travel to see do sales for Henry Estate you know and I'd hit like big city like Atlanta Orlando you know that's the only place I'd go hit the sushi bars because that's I had to go to Portland, I mean, to find the to one. find sushi, like, you know, once I learned to like it, it's like, oh, this is really good, you know, but it, we don't have, you got to go to the big city to even find this thing. Now it's like in the grocery stores, Fred Meyer, Safeway, you know, every grocery store's got sushi in there right now. I mean, and then the sushi like Eugene, like right down by Fifth Street there, what you can swing us. You can throw a few rocks in any direction. About five sushi outfits right there, within, right off a of Broadway area, right there. I mean, it's they're all over the place, you know. And it was just great because sushi's awesome, and it's a, it's its own culinary artistic creation. It's just fabulous watching the guys make it and to eat it, and you know, fresh and everything. But my example is just that 30 years ago you couldn't hardly find sushi unless you went to Portland, and now you don't have to go hardly across the street, and it's right in front of you, you know, all over the place. So. We've had this gastronomic explosion of different cuisines and just different beverages. Now we've got craft breweries, you know, not just the big ones or whatever. And, you know, um, Gavin from Sundance Wine Cellars, when I was in there last year, he was telling me about how much fascination he's got with the, the tea house that he goes to, because there's, I'm not a big tea fan, she likes tea. I've had some, they're pretty good, and I understand, very ancient beverage, huge culture steeped in tea all around the world, cultures all over the place, you know, and then, but, you know, you know, and he told me the same thing, well, there's tea you can get, like, you know, Lipton or whatever, you know, and then there's tea, and then there's really, you know, these craft teas. He goes to the tea house. They have these craft teas. They sit around, and, like, it's, you know, it's really cool. There's just so many, and now we're seeing 
creameries all over, like it used to be Tillamook and, you know, Bandon, and now we've got, like, creameries all over, or Kraft creameries making these cheeses that are just unbelievable, you know, right from the cows that are here in Oregon, you know. And these are just examples of this gastronomic expansion that we've gone into. and. And we're so lucky here, all of us in Oregon, and really, well, we're blessed on the West Coast, California, Washington, for vinifera. We own vinifera production. Wine's made in 50 states around the country, but they don't make it like, I mean, California, Oregon, Washington got down. Nobody can produce wines of the vinifera. Most of them are all, you know, hybrid-based or whatever, so we've got that going for us. But the bounty of Oregon that we have here is just unbelievable, whether it's the inland stuff, and we got the Pacific Ocean right over here, so we've got all this seafood food, you know, the fish, the oysters, the Dungeness crab, it just goes on and on and on and on of this bounty that we have here. And then we have, you know, this elevated wine culture, wine production culture that, like I said, has come a long way since 30 years. It's rising to match this this level of, of quality of other foods or however you want to, beverages or just you know, things we can, I don't know what package you, what box you want to put it in, but it's all part of that, you know, hedonistic lifestyle, having the wines and trying to source some really good food and checking out somebody else's really good food and just, you know, the other beverages and the things and everything that we can have to, you know, life short on this planet and then you're gone. So, you know, you might as well, you might as well enjoy it, you know, and I'd rather have a pint of, Hop Valley Alphadelic than try to slam a six pack of PBR or something. I just like stuff's disgusting to me. I just don't even. I mean, I I don't. I just, just I know the masses had go after or whatever. I just don't understand. I can't fathom it. Like I said, they buy, they drink Folgers coffee and I can't. You know, so. Um, Elevated tastes. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> I could go on a little bit and take the devil's advocate of the other side of of that with food because there is some cheap stuff out there that I do like, that I shouldn't like, and I do. Maybe I'll just leave it. I won't say specifically what it is, but... Guilty pleasures. Yeah, and it might even be, you know, like some fast foods or whatever that like talking about all this stuff, you think you couldn't build stomach fast food, but there are some places that like it shouldn't be good to me it should taste like alpo dog food but it's like i could eat another one you know <laughs> whatever so and i so that puts me right in there with the masses that I'm not, I'm not trying to put them down it's just you know so many things are made they made they can make food bland just because people can't handle the spice you know so when when they say curry i'm wanting curry i'm not one to just like have to hunt for the taste of curry it should be up right up in your face pretty strong you know and uh so, yeah, I think that's a lot of what drives us to and just, Jennifer says it's a rich lifestyle. We, we're not, we don't have a lot of money, you know, but we have a pretty rich lifestyle in the things that we get to do and, you know, eat and experience. The last, the last thing I'm going to ask is just tell me, tell me about what's next for the two of you and, and for Season Sellers. I'm going to start. Well, it's hard. It that's that's well. I don't know. We just want to continue. You know, um, 
I guess our goal uh, with season sellers and the way we we are marking it, marketing it is we're taking the wines out of Southern Oregon and we think Southern Oregon is God's country to raise grapes. I mean, it, and it's, it's a secret to a lot of people down here. And there's a lot of wineries that just sell out of their tasting room. That's the only place you can get it or join their wine club online or something like that. But we've found that with taking our wines up into the Portland area, and out of Southern Oregon that we are touching so many people that didn't realize that we were even down here. Uh, you know, people that are just moving into the state, they, I mean, all they know is about the Willamette Valley and they're just like blown away with that we even have wineries, you know, down here. And so that's kind of the direction we're going. We think that, uh, you know, Southern Oregon is just starting to grow here. And we, we label our wines as Southern Oregon. We don't put Umpqua because most people wouldn't even know where that's at. Even the Rogue, the people are pretty vague with that, although that name's been out there for a while. Yeah. but. But uh, anyway, we just kind of want to be pioneers of uh, promoting these warm climate varietals that are so special from down here in Southern Oregon. So I don't know. And for us, I think it's a growth thing. You know, when we formed Season Sellers in 2012, our first year we made six different wines from 11 different grape varietals. Five of those varietals we'd never made before we jumped in doing this and we can only learn so much by drinking other people's wines the way we learn about these grape varietals is to bring a ton or so of this grape in to crush it press it ferment it we'll cellar it we'll see how it stands alone we see how it blends with other varietals and then it gives us great insight again to have that vision and focus for sourcing grape to make a particular style of wine like the Viognier or most popular wines are Transparency White Blend, which is a semi-sparkling blend of Mueller, Turgau, Muscat, and Riesling. So very light, bright, and clean, and refreshing. And so um, we've been having a blast making wines from different grape varietals that we've not worked with before. And in some of our, we actually do some uh, custom craft work, custom winemaking for some other wineries, and it has included making styles of like, for instance, rosé. We just now have a rosé out for the first time in the last couple of years on our own label. We've been making rosés for a number of years for other people, and we've made them from Pinot Noir and Syrah. And in 19, I made one from, we made one from Tempranillo. It was just amazing. Um, and then now, as we're starting to do our own, it gives us a lot of, like, I already, we got to kind of, Honer rosé making skills, making wine for other people, right? And then in, in now, not that we would always make the very best we could, but we know more about it now to be able to produce out under our, our own light label. So, and then other varietals, like we've, uh, we've made now like three Gruner Veltliners from some grape for other people. And boy, that one, was it 18 or 16, 18? Mm -hmm. Oh, that thing was so amazing. Mango out of, it was like, oh my God, this stuff's incredible. It's like, 
you know, we want to make Gruner and put it out on our own label and go on marketing it. And like, God, I don't know. It's probably harder than selling Marsan Rusan right now. But you'd look at the wine and go, geez, this stuff's really good. Man, I could just sit and drink a lot of this stuff. I know a lot of people would. So, and when we first made Gruner, we'd never made one before. So, like I said, when there's this standard, when you're making Pinot Noir, you know, you've got this Burgundy out there, you know, or when you're making Cab Sauvignon Merlot, you're you're looking at board, you're look, you have some kind of standard, but I'd only had a half a dozen eight Gruners in my life. I'd the Austrians ones mostly. I'd, honestly, when Russell uh, planted it over here 20 years ago, I'd never even heard of the stuff. I had no idea what it was and, and was very skeptical at the beginning. And then another guy's growing it. We're making wine for another outfit from his grape that comes through the cellar. Here's Gruner in the bin for the first time. I'd, I've never made it before, you know. What are we shooting for? What's our target, you know? Now we've come to really have a fascination mm -hmm. for it, although we're not going to debut it under our label right now. We have enough whites to play with. Maybe in the future, I still I think there's a bright future for it based on the wine itself. The name, it's like trying to sell Gewürztraminer out there. You try to get people on board with Gruner Veltliner, you know, it's going to, you've got a little bit of hard road to, Oh, on this one, you know, but again, if the caliber of the wine is there, then, you mm -hmm. know, it's there. Ultimately, you would think that that would produce a victory, you know, for the varietal and those who are, are making it, but, you know, you know, so much so. So for us, you know, doing what she's talking about, taking the wines out there, learning and growing more, I, there's more for us to learn and experience with these, you know, grape varietals, different grape varietals that we maybe have access to and, and bring them in here and, you know, continue to develop our, you know, our winemaking skills. Um, you know, it's, it's so strange because what we start with and what we end up with are two different things. We start with grape juice and we end up with wine. And chemically, these are two totally different substances. And so I kind of refer to the cellar as a cocoon. During harvest, it's the chrysalis. We come through the door, we're like entering a, a chrysalis where we're taking, um, we're taking caterpillars, which would represent the grape, and we're making butterflies, which would represent the wine. And in between is this phenomenal, I call it the grand metamorphosis. And I see, they get older and older, it's like, well, are we ready for these 14 hour days around? I'm getting old for this stuff, you know? And then the first grapes show up and I'm like, wow, look at this grape, look at this juice, you know? And then a few days later, when it's fermenting in the tank, it's like, oh shit, well, it just fuels an incredible amount of energy for the campaign of a harvest. And we call it, it is like a campaign when the grapes are coming in ripe and the whole fermentation and that whole thing. And, um, you know, during that fermentation process is when we're in the cocoon is the time really when as winemakers, us as winemakers have an influence as to the style of butterfly that we're going to produce. What are we going to make a monarch? Are we going to do that? What are we going to do with this grape? We're trying to go sorts of grape and then help facilitate that metamorphosis from the caterpillar you know, to the butterfly. And like we said, we need to have nice, ripe, healthy caterpillars. I gotta have good, ripe fruit. If you've got a weak caterpillar coming into the chrysalis, to the cocoon, you're, you're, uh, you're gonna have a harder time cranking out a, a really beautiful butterfly. And I think a lot of, you know, I've had wines, uh, some winemakers and wineries have just, they're not making butterflies, they're making moths. You know, they get a caterpillar in, but it's a moth that comes out the other, sorry, it's just the way it is. And these are beautiful butterflies, you know, and it's, it, I think that's a fascinating thing. I think that's what keeps us going a lot is that we never quite know what's around the corner the next day, you know, um, and then we're, you know, it's coming at us and then we're, 
we're we're dealing with it and uh, and what can that happen? Because it's different every year. It's always so. It never comes uh, out the same way twice. But like I said, I really implore, I've said this over and over, consumers, I backed, I didn't really finish that comment, to get out. The best time to try wine, to hit wineries, is in late September and early through mid-October while harvest is is happening. And you you can ask, all you can do is say no. But usually they're like us, they're wanting to educate people and get them more involved with the process that we go through. So, you know, it'll be anywhere from the assistant winemaker might bring a couple samples of some beakers of some stuff up into the tasting room. They might take you back into the lab where they've got more like, well, this is what we're working on today. You know, we've got the, the samples are already pulled. Well, they might take you back into the cellar and, you know, like, hey, this is fermenting, you know. And the best way would be to see to do that same winery and ask about that same wine, like to say they're doing a cold, slow ferment on a Pinot Gris and be there when it's juiced before they pitch the yeast and then be there like a week later or a few days later, right after it started fermentation and be there a few days later when it's farther through the ferment and a few days later and see this progression of the caterpillar to the butterfly. Because so there's so many wine experts out there, but they're, they don't know anything about grape. And what we need is we need to have grape and juice experts to make you know, this to be experts in, in the wine too. It'd be like knowing all the best cooked prime rib, you know, and the places to go get it, the price and everything, but you don't know anything about the cow. You don't know prime versus choice. You don't know marbling. You don't know preparation. All you know is what's good, what's good prime rib, you know, you don't know, you can't elaborate at all. And, to, and for us, it's all matter so much so that we put it on the label, our season rose with the winter, spring, summer, and fall, and the sun in the middle, and the dance that we do every year as we go around in the wine industry. And we, as Jennifer said, we only get one crack at this per year. Beer and spirits, you know, beer, they get watermelon hops and yeast, and they're they're making beer next week, you know, and our only, our source of ingredients only happens one time a year. So we're making wine all year long, but we only get one chance at it a year. So you only get so many laps around the sun before your time's done, you know, and over. And, um, and I, I would implore them to try to, uh, get you know, get out to some wineries and try. If if nothing else, you know, try some of that. Because if I had Viognier that was like comes in about 25 bricks, and we had some of that at, when it was about 22 or 21, just starting to ferment, fizzing, little yeasty, it's starting to get a little turbid and cloudy because the ferment's starting. 21 sugar and about one and a half alcohol, and I poured that for you. Absolutely, dude, you'd, you'd go through the ceiling. You'd be like, oh my god. And it's like, yeah, the wine's so good because this is what we're starting with the grapes are so good to begin with and we're very careful in preserving you know being the caretakers of the fruit and you know like I said uh, like I'd like to say you know if we're wanting to if there's any any truth to this elusive concept of terroir then it's our mission as winemakers to try to capture the essence of the vineyard in the bottle as best we can and so limited you know some new oak but 10 to 12 percent you don't want to over oak the wines because you don't really want to get in the way of that if the fruit's good it's back to the cook shift. If that salmon filet is good, you don't want to mess with that thing too much. You want a you know, little seasoning or you know, whatever, but you don't want some big heavy ass sauce on the thing that's gonna destroy the natural beauty and essence of what's underneath it. And that's what we're trying to do, winemaking too. We want to see that fruit like fly. We want to see it elevated. And so we want to do the winemaking and the things that we can 
you know, in a very minimalistic, low oxygen situation to be able to um, carry that fruit forward and have that butterfly, you know, fly, you know, beautiful and people just like, oh, it's so pretty, you know, it's like, this is, look at this, it's so, you know, and it's, it's, I, it's taken years and years and years to, you know, think about it this way, because I'll be in a, another winery and going, hey, it's cocoon time, right? Caterpillar's the butterfly. They're like, what? You know, and I'm like, and then what we're doing was grapes, you know? It's like, chemically, these it's totally different than the wine, you know? And and so it's that great transition, I think, that happens. It's so much fun to see it. We can't wait to see it happen again this next year right. and to be a part of it, you know, and watch this whole thing happen and, you know, be a part of it is really, I think, is really pretty special. You must have something more you want to say. Well, and um, it's I just the two of us. We have no employees here, so we're pretty uh, uh, in tune with how we want things done. I don't think we could hand it over to someone and it would happen the same, you know. <clears throat> so we'll probably work season sellers until we can't work it anymore. It'd be like being an executive yeah. chef and trying to teach another chef to try to make what make what I want, you know. When and again, that chefing is very, you know, you start with a recipe, but you're tasting along the way and going, that nah, needs more of this and less of that, and right, it's like it's it's a give and go kind of thing, and you know, um, that's I think a lot of the fascination of the whole thing and and the seat of the pants, you know, keep you on your toes kind of thing that that the winemaking involves. I don't know, the grapes they grow, it's really slow. And then they put the grape clusters out. They just, you can <laughs> the winemaking's more dynamic. So that's back to my, my wanting more, the, you know, having more fun or being more interested in the things that are a little bit more dynamic in nature than, but the grapes are so important and so amazing what we have here in Southern Oregon um, and in Oregon in general, you know, what what we have to work with and where we're trying to kind of go with it. And so hopefully we'll see some other, maybe some different bridles that might come out later if we can ad advance our, our, or line up a little bit, you know, or whatever. Maybe we will make a Gruner Valiner. I don't know. We keep making a couple of really nice ones with these other people, and we do this custom wine craft. We're like surrogate winemakers, so sometimes we'll make these we'll make these amazing wines, but then the case goods go to the winery that contracted us to make it. And they're like, well, can I have like you know six bottles of it just to? We'll try it. Oh, this is so good. But it's not like us where we make a wonderful Viognier, and I got as much of it as I want. I got pallets of it, you know, so. Scott's like got, you know, plenty of his own wines that I love or whatever. But and that that's fun too. That keeps you on your toes because you're making wine for somebody else instead of you. So I'm trying to get out of exactly what style it is that you're looking for, and then try to hit that target as close as we can. So always up for a challenge. Though so I think the wine industry, the winemaking, keeps us challenged on a pretty regular basis, so. And doing the cells. Yeah, well that's the biggest challenge, you know, <laughs> they're so, 
there's so much wine out there. So our nickname for ourselves is Secret Sellers. So we've been actually called Secret Sellers before because <laughs> we're, we're 10 years old now and we make you know, phenomenal wines and some of the best in the state for sure. Or Savion Blanc's in the current issue of the wine press is a seller select and so many other awards. But nobody really knows who we are because we're not the best at marketing, you know. I didn't go to school for marketing. I didn't, that wasn't my thing. It's not really what I wanted to do, you know. I wanted to do science and engineering. And we kind of call, this is a blend, I kind of refer to us as uh, wine engineering because we're, we're taking, you know, it's very much of a process engineering type approach. Again, we're starting with something that, that what we end up with is entirely different. So, you know, if you're taking chemicals and you're extruding plastic parts, I had a roommate at Oregon State went to work for a plastic extrusion outfit that made parts for batteries, you know, separators and stuff like that, you know. There's this process going along and you just can't just uniformly accept what comes out of the other side of the extrusion machine. There's a QC process that, you know, did are we is it meeting the specs that we're looking for and, you know, its integrity and quality and all that. And so we're doing that with the wine as well too. What we start with and what we end up with are different. And you know, people are always like, "Oh, the science of winemaking." I'm like, "Yeah, well, it's more like in, it's more like engineering because we have, you know, we have microbiological issues to deal with. We have chemical issues to deal with. We have thermodynamic issues to deal with. We have mechanical issues to deal with. We have all of this going on, and we're gonna kind of uh, erect it and put it together in various different configurations to get what it is that we're wanting to do. And some of these things like this semi-sparkling white blend or that Viognier don't end up being in the bottle looking like that by accident. It's not an accident. It's very kind of premeditated. It's going to vary because of the <clears throat> nature of the vintages and everything, but it's we're fairly premeditated and and, and, you know, geared toward, uh, you know, this objective, you know, this is what we're looking for. And we have this target in mind. When we don't get there, then, you know, you've already made that wine, but next year you're gonna maybe do things different. Like I said, I don't, every year my winemaking changes. I still don't, like I made changes a couple of years ago. I'm doing some things now that I didn't even do you know, at my 23rd year of, wine, of, of directing winemaking or whatever, some new techniques and some things like that that were easy to implement in the cellar. It makes sense. Um, I think it's adding to wine quality, you know, and I'm, I'm, we're, we're doing that. Now mm -hmm. I can elaborate, digress, and talk about what it is. But, um, you know, it's, it's that whole process of, of turning the, the juice into wine and what it is that we're looking for that, it's a lot of fun and like I said it's kind of a it's a we're drawing many aspects of various different kinds of science and then we're putting this together in an engineering format where we're going to engineer this semi-sparkling light sweet fruity thing that's a blend of three different varietals it's not a field blend they're fermented all separately in the tanks and then a blend occurs cross-flow filtration sterile bottling colds carbon dioxide involved you know when we're bottling it's different than bottling the other one I bottle reds is bottling days for transparency are entirely different than bottling days for red you know we have a whole different you know, 
set of objectives and variables involved with it, it's not the same. It's actually, between these two, it's not even close. They're way different from each other. But getting that CO2 in there, temperature's gotta be down, this wine's bottled at close to, we're near 32 when we're coming out of the tank with a five degree drop. Mm -hmm. So we're hitting the bottle at well under 40 degrees on bottling days, and that, that has its associated problems and issues. And so all of a sudden, we're, think, we're, got, we're thinking thermodynamics and you know how are we gonna hold the temperature down? How can we do this better? We're bottling reds at room temps. Who gives a crap? You know, it's just it's all going in the bottle at 55, 60 degrees, which is what you know. So there's these different, there's all these different things we got to be thinking about. You got to be on your toes about it, and it's just like I think it's kind of it's pretty fun. It keeps mm -hmm. us keeps us going. <laughs> keeps, us, keeps us driven to what's around the next, you know, what's around the next corner, whether it's a new varietal or you know. Uh, something, one of the other variables involved or a new new vineyard source. We've been making Sauvignon Blanc now for several years and only two years in a row did the Sauvignon Blanc ever come from the same vineyard source. It's been from a, that varietal has been from a different vineyard source almost every time we've made it. And they're all, they're kind of, they're different, they've all been different. It's They've been eye-opening, you know. I'd made some Sauvignon Blanc before, but we decided in 15 we were gonna bring it in uh, to phase out the Marsan Roussan and like, let's go with another fruit forward white Sauvignon Blanc to back up the Vignet, perfectly grown here in Southern Oregon. You know, a range of different styles of Sablonks out there from the Kiwi ones to the French ones to the, I refer to ours as more of a California style, uh, up around 14 alcohol, ripe fruit, much more tropical notes, less of the grass and that, you know, cat piss smell that you come to associate with. Um, certain styles of uh, uh which is good. I mean, it's, it's, Distinct. You know, you're looking for the cat piss, you Distinct. know, it's like, you know, but people are going, what? And other people are laughing and going, eh, it's there. It's like, you know, it's like that petrol fusel oil like thing that Riesling does, the German Riesling things do, and you get that in front of some people, and then you talk petroleum and kerosene, and then they pick it up, they, they're how like, they don't. How much did you put in there? How much kerosene did you put in your Riesling? And they think it's just bizarre, and it's just like, well, you ever had any German Rieslings before? And they're like, no, and I'm like, well, you should, because they're the crown worldwide champions of Riesling, and they have been for centuries, and like, this is what they do when they age out, and you, after a while, you come to look for it, you're like, you know, where's that, where's that little bit of fusel oil, you know, that fusel oil smell in there or whatever. But uh, that, you know, that making wine from all those different vineyard sites, that, it's the same varietal, but it's come from different sorts. The one we have now is for, is for our first Umpqua Valley one. We had to right. get grape, we got grape from here for it, where we were always kind of been doing it from the Rogue Valley. And the next year where I got a contract, we're gonna, is we're bouncing back to Rogue Valley Sablon grape again. We're going back, back south again, so it's, it's kind of fun. You learn a lot about you know all of these attributes and the. the That's one plus with not having the vineyard, mm -hmm. is you know, and then then, then there's not good things. The downside not of not having, having, having your vineyard, vineyard too. too. So yeah. anyway, it's the smoke taint thing has like made some uh, wineries from up north, bigger wineries come in and just buy lots. We're seeing. We're seeing and a, take it away from yeah. small little boutique, you know. And we're so. looking for a little one, two ton batches out of the vineyard and wineries are coming in buying a whole vineyard block. It, it's kind of gone actually from what well, was really a buyer's market for grapes in the last few years ago. Over the last two years now, it's changed much more to a seller's market. Um, and, and we're having a harder time locating uh, some of these varietals 
um, you know, for, for purchase to bring in, you know, or whatever, including like Viognier and some others that are, um, you know, our main varietals. I got to have this stuff. You know, I'm hearing guys are going, well, I'm going to Walla Walla. And I'm like, I ain't going to Walla Walla. We're a Southern Oregon producer. I got to find it down here in the Rogan Umpqua or I'm not going to be able to make it. So, um, yeah, so there's a downside to not growing your own grapes, you know, but we don't have the investment and these varietals stuck in the ground and this is what you're going to get, you know. We buy Marsan and Roussan for a few years and make it and try to sell it. It doesn't work so much, you know. We just stop buying it. We start buying Sauv Blanc, you know, and and so it allows a flexibility of being able to do some different things and, and such. So, but, but like I said, making wine from different vineyard sites that keep you on your toes too, because it's different, you know. And and again, again, that whole thing is just learning. Let's take the wines to the people up north and show them the other side of the tracks for Oregon wine production and expand and evolve ourselves along the way, you know. To to you know, it's learn. Yeah, and I don't have anybody to pass it on to. You know, it's a shame as I get a little older now. I see that. A lot more respect for my granddad and the older my dad, you know, the older generations and growing up on a farm and a ranch where, you know, and just conceptually, you know, we learn all this stuff, we gain all this experience, whether you're a musician or you're whatever, and you, you know, you're all of this collected, and then you know, ultimately we we end up dying, you know, and it it's all, you know, you build to this pinnacle of what you've been able to do, and then it's all gone, it's all over, other than what you can pass on to future, future generations and stuff. And our kids are off doing something else. Our son's an engineer and daughter's kind of our gypsy child, kind of a, <laughs> a wildflower. She's smart, she's brilliant, but I don't know. She's with, making if there, jewelry. Yeah, she's with her <clears throat> boyfriend's family out in Wisconsin, but you know, I kind of wonder if we couldn't get something more stable or something if Stacy wouldn't want to come back and kind of there's still time for her to learn, you know, the winemaking and stuff like that. She definitely likes the wines, you know, and she'd be a good wine salesperson mm -hmm. out there, you know. But well, I don't know if that's the direct future of where season sellers is going to be, you know. It's a little bit of just like, you know, one month, one year at a time. And, and our ideas kind of change, you know, as to what you... What, where where you're you know where we're you want to pressure, <clears throat> pressuring our kids no certainly in no way so matter of fact we'd be advising we'd be advising them against getting into the wine industry <laughs> you should do something else and make a better Don't get hooked they get make a better <laughs> get a little bit more money in the bank you know for your <laughs> retirement and then you know whatever if you can't go get filthy rich out there somewhere then, then come back to right, then come back to the wine industry because there's that <laughs> saying in the wine business that if you want to make a small fortune you got to start with a large one and we didn't have that we started with less than a small fortune so yeah, it's a struggle out there. It's very competitive, and, and uh, it's 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 dominated by big players with a lot of money, deep pockets. Whether the producers or the houses that they're in that drive wine sales in stores and restaurants around the state and the country, it's um, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. But if you can, you know, if your if your wines, you know, are really you know diamond quality you can be a diamond in the rut you're still you've, you still think we you got something here and people do come they'll try the transparency of others for like never had a wine like this ever in my life you know this white blend and and so there's something we can still 
capture out there, I think, you know, by producing extremely unique and high quality wines. Fantastic. Thank you both so much for sharing your stories with us and telling us about all the things behind season sellers. And uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you thank for you. having us today. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's always fun to, kind of fun to share the story, Absolutely. you know. So. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.